It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, July 15th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Ukraine isn't invited to join NATO yet, but secures new support from Western allies, including the Biden administration. We'll continue doing it as soon as possible, but the actual timeline, I think we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to see. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It won't last forever, but a Republican senator's block on military promotions is leaving senior positions unfilled and may even impact the next Joint Chiefs chairman as the current one retires. It's quite embarrassing to see this game of this showdown and sort of brinksmanship that Senator Tuberville is able to hold up, you know, 250 people's lives, the families of these military people. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It's not a question of if anymore. Ukraine's future is in NATO. A joint statement by the leaders of all 31 NATO nations made that clear during this past week's NATO summit in Lithuania. I look forward to the day when we're having the meeting celebrating your official official membership in NATO. That was President Biden's message to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky arrived at the summit in Vilnius frustrated, he said, by a lack of a timetable for his country's membership. Though by summit's end, Ukraine had new and long-standing security and economic assistance guaranteed not just by NATO but by the G7 as well. Ukrainian delegation is bringing home significant security victory for the Ukraine, for our country, for our people. For our children, it opens for us absolutely new security opportunities. This week, cluster bombs, munitions banned by more than 100 nations, including many in NATO, arrived in Ukraine, supplied by the U.S., a new addition to Ukraine's Western-backed arsenal. All of it welcomed news to Zelensky's government, which is represented here in Washington by Ukraine's ambassador, Oksana Markarova. I spoke with her at the conclusion of the NATO summit. Well, look, there are several elements of... uh... Uh, I think, uh, very good achievements during this uh, NATO summit and everything around it. First, the summit itself, the creation of the Ukraine-NATO Council, uh, it's a very important milestone. And we now have uh, uh, a platform where we will discuss our potential, not only membership, but also how to get there. So it's, it's 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 a very positive step. Uh, second, the declaration, the G7 declaration, uh, which outlined that the security assistance not only will continue, but that uh, all the countries will stay with us as long as it takes with the very specific items that are listed there. And plus, which is very important, that it's actually while we are working towards the membership, not not, not a replacement, so to say. So it's an additional, very strong statement. And third, very powerful meeting between our presidents where we discussed uh, all the issues of our bilateral cooperation and the security uh, and and the counteroffensive and everything else. So all in all, I mean, it's 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 a very positive step forward. Uh, are we, you know, and we will be working towards our future membership. This is something that the majority of Ukrainians support. 
So in your mind, this is not a question of whether or not Ukraine ultimately becomes a NATO ally. It's a question of when Ukraine becomes a NATO ally. Well, we definitely hope so. And that's what we hear from our friends and allies. You know, the discussion is very practical. And uh, I think now when we are fighting for the values which uh, on which not only the great country of the United States is founded, not only the European Union embraces all these values, but also NATO, you know, this is ultimately the fight for democracy. So, uh, yes, we we hope and we heard from the allies uh, that we are discussing, you know, the, the specific concrete steps, not if, you know. President Zelensky, um, at least in that Twitter message earlier in the week, seemed to express an awful lot of frustration uh, with uh, what he called sort of this vagueness of or, or not having clarity as it relates to sort of a timetable for uh, NATO membership. What, what is the timetable for your government? How quickly do you see Ukraine um, not only being invited, not only applying, but but ultimately uh, winning the approval uh, to join NATO? Well, the timetable, of course, will depend on, on a number of uh, elements. You know, one is uh, uh, the decision of the allies and the discussions. And that's, I think, something that we have to ask all our friends and allies, and we will work actively with them. The other is when we will be ready because again you know we have been working we already implemented 13 annual action plans annual national plans with nato and there is quite a number of reforms ukraine already did in order to make ourselves according to the nato standards and there is still some reforms that we need to do and we will continue doing these reforms not only because we want to be part of nato or for that matter part of european union but also because these reforms are very uh, important for Ukraine, and they improve our uh, environment in Ukraine. Uh, we will try to do it as soon as possible. Of course, you know, I think it's it's almost a miracle that uh, a country in a full-fledged war, as Ukraine is, defending itself from brutal enemy, from the unprovoked aggression everywhere in Ukraine, continues to do all the reforms which already resulted in our candidacy to European Union. So we'll continue doing it as soon as possible. But the actual timeline, I think we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to see how quickly we will be able to move there. Obviously, that timeline would have to be dependent on the conflict itself, right? President Biden and others have made clear that joining NATO in the midst of a war is really not an option. Well, you know, Nobody wants to win in this war more than Ukrainians and nobody wants peace more than Ukrainians. So obviously this is a number one priority for us to liberate all our territories, to get all our people back and to make sure that Russians are finally out from our sovereign territory. Is part of, you know, obviously this conflict is going on and, and we can't predict how, how it may ultimately end. Um, is there a scenario in which uh, the Ukrainian government agrees to pause NATO membership um, as a condition to Russian forces leaving the country? Oh, completely not related uh, one to another. Okay. The choice of NATO and European Union is our civilizational choice, a choice we have made a number of times before. This is where... We see ourselves. This is the values we support. This is uh, how we would like our country to 
to develop and this is actually what ukrainian people and you know we are democracy there uh, it's the people who decide and this is what ukrainian people decided a number of times during the revolution of dignity during orange revolution in 1991 when we voted to be independent so no this is the choice uh, which we made and for which we are fighting right now with regard to russians uh, leaving the territory of ukraine they have to do it because this is this is the right thing to do you know they attacked us unprovokedly in 2014 they illegally uh, uh, you know, uh, occupied Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Lugansk oblast then. They illegally reinvaded us in 2022. And, uh, you know, our goal is very clear to restore peace, meaning we have to liberate all territory of Ukraine. There are certainly um, voices in this country, lawmakers, others who worry that uh, Ukraine joining NATO moves that alliance closer to an all-out conflict with Russia. Is that a valid concern? Is that a valid fear? Well, look, I, I think, uh, first of all, Ukrainians are fighting for our country. And while we are asking and we're very grateful to all our partners, especially to the United States, for all the support that we're getting for the security assistance, budget assistance, humanitarian assistance, very grateful to every American, but we never asked America for the boots on the ground or other, and we, we never will, you know. We don't want other countries to be dragged into the war. And actually, uh, in order not to drag other countries into the war, uh, we have to win over this and we have to defeat Russia while it's still in Ukraine. Let's listen to President Putin or to the war criminal Putin, I should say. Uh, he's very open about what his intentions are. He's restoring some kind of empire. He wants to attack not only Ukraine. So uniting, giving more support to Ukraine and winning this while it's still contained in Ukraine is the way to prevent getting other countries involved. And then we together can move ahead uh, towards uh, our membership in the European Union, our membership in NATO. So it's quite vice versa. We have to be strong now. Uh, we have to, you know, uh, peace through strength is the concept that works with Russia. And we just have to be strong. Let me pivot away from the NATO conversation and, and more towards some of that ongoing military support, particularly from the United States. How is Ukraine planning on using um, these uh, munitions, uh, these cluster munitions that, that are now being provided by, by the U.S.? Yes, very grateful for, for this type of munitions. We have been asking for them for quite some time, and I'm positive it will be uh, they will be very useful on the battlefield. Now, uh, more than 100 of, countries, though, say that they should be banned. Why does Ukraine not share that that same level of concern with, you know, obviously a, a lot of unintended consequences of, of weapons like this? Well, I wish any of the munitions uh, were not used and uh, there was no war in Ukraine. But we are defending our territory and we need all types of munitions in order to be able to defend ourselves from very brutal uh, war criminals who are torturing people, raping people, killing people, destroying our villages, using all types of prohibited uh, weapons. We need now all capabilities. And, I, you know, we're asking for these munitions to use on our territory. The cluster munitions that U.S. is supplying to us is actually of a much better quality, less dangerous for civilians, but even more so, we will not use it in the areas uh, which are populated by civilians. We will use it targetedly against the perpetrators, against the aggressors. And as we already have shown, when we liberate the territories, 
the first people who move in are the deminers. And this is a big, by the way, area of cooperation between us and the U.S., where U.S. and other allies help us to demine. We are the most mined country already, mm -hmm. and it was before even we uh, received these munitions. And, uh, you know, the Russians' uh, munitions, the Russian very bad cluster munitions, the Russians' uh, unexploded ordnance is everywhere in Ukraine. So we will use it very responsibly. We uh, care about our civilians, our children, and we will use it only in order to liberate our territory faster and we will demine right after. And not, not using it in Russian territory then? Oh, absolutely not. Let me, uh, I know part of your, your responsibilities is, is the ambassador, is the top diplomat for, for your government in this country is to meet a lot with U.S. American lawmakers. As you do that, what is your sense of the sustainability of U.S. military and humanitarian and, and budget assistance to your country? Well, we is, it do wane, is that support starting to wane? Do you hear that from lawmakers? Actually not. You know, we, uh, you know, the, the very strong bipartisan support is there. We feel it from the people. We feel it from lawmakers. Uh, of course, uh, we are ready to answer any questions. We are very transparent about how we use uh, the, the assistance. We are very uh, transparent with all the inspector generals and they're checking it and you see all the positive reports about both use of the security assistance and budget assistance. So we are very grateful for everything we received and unfortunately because the war continues, we will need more and we are working very actively and we're asking our American friends to support us a little bit more so that we can win and then return to self-sustainability and uh, you know, be an answer to so many global challenges and and work together with the with America on addressing those. Are you able to audit this aid sort of ha be able to explain to to Americans how that money is being spent where it's going how it has been used up to this point? Absolutely, you know. So for security assistance we're using the NATO lockfast system, our own system. We literally are reporting on every item where it is, how it's used, so it's it's very detailed and transparent on the budget assistance we also i mean again our budget is pretty uh, very simple budget right now we have cut down all the expenditures that we could so it's just a bare minimum of sustaining the life in the country and the money that we receive go very transparently through the world bank trust fund they are audited uh, we report and we can literally trace every dollar when we exchange it into Ukrainian currency and provide it as the help to teachers, to uh, to IDPs, to for for the first needs, and we are reporting all of that back. So so yes, you know we we already are very transparent. We are ready to provide even more information. We send all these reports because you know we want also American people to see that not only we are very grateful, but also we are using this money in a very responsible way. Madam Ambassador, I appreciate the time. Uh, my best to you and your family and certainly your, your government and your country. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. God bless you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.
For months now, senior military positions have gone unfilled, held up in the Senate by one Republican senator, Alabama's Tommy Tuberville. This is his protest of a Pentagon policy that helps reimburse service members for abortion costs if troops have to travel to a state where abortion is legal. Tuberville told CBS on Thursday, All they need to do is change it back. To where it was. And when asked if he was dragging the military into politics, he turned that back on the Pentagon. I want to keep politics out of military. It is ruining our military. But his stance is holding up more than 250 promotions and is now impacting the highest of military brass as four members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are retiring. The general picked to succeed, Marine Commandant General David Berger, is delayed. The man picked to take Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley's place may suffer as well. Air Force Chief of Staff Charles Q. Brown told the Senate Armed Services Committee in a confirmation hearing that this could do critical harm to the military. Because we have our more junior officers who now will look up and say, uh, if that's the challenge I'm going to have to deal with in the future, uh, I may not want to, I'm going to balance between my family and serving in a senior position. And we will lose talent uh, uh, because of uh, those, those challenges. President Biden called Tuberville's positions ridiculous while he was in Helsinki this past week. He's jeopardizing U.S. security by what he's doing. I expect the Republican Party to stand up, stand up and do something about it. They, they've given their power to do that. The president said the idea that we might not have a joint chiefs of staff chairman and impact foreign policy decisions this way over domestic policy positions is bizarre. The nominee to replace joint chiefs chairman Milley, Charles Q. Brown, was nominated by former President Trump in 2020 to be Air Force chief of staff, and he was approved then by the Senate 98 to 0. Well, we know a lot about General Brown. He's the current head of the Air Force. Jen Griffin is Fox's national security correspondent. He is the first uh, uh, black leader of the Air Force and would make history again as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, but he, what's interesting about him is he's an accomplished F-16 pilot. He started as an ROTC student, um, rose up uh, to be a very accomplished F-16 pilot. He was. Uh, he has about 3,000 hours in the cockpit and 160 hours of combat. Um, he led the the anti-ISIS fight from the air. He was the air commander over in the Middle East, but he also has had a lot of time in the Pacific. So he, he commanded um, the Air Force component out in the Pacific, and so he has a lot of experience there. And so that's really one of the reasons that he's sort of perfectly placed for to replace General Milley when he has to retire at the end of um, on October 1st. So what will happen and what is happening right now is that he went through his confirmation hearing yesterday, but there's no vote scheduled for him to be confirmed. And that really starts to gum up the process. They're about, right now, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is holding up about 250 senior officer nominations, and yeah. that's preventing movement. Um, right now, the Marine Corps is without a commandant for the first time in 150 years because of this holdup. Uh, Senator Tuberville is upset about a, a policy, a new policy, um, in post Roe v. Wade, in which the Pentagon is allowing any military members who uh, may need an abortion or other reproductive health services to leave the states where they're uh, assigned if those uh, services aren't offered there and they're given paid leave. They're not paying for abortions, but Senator Tuberville's trying to make a point. And in the process, for the last five months, he's held up all the military uh, confirmations of 
of senior officers. And uh, now we're getting to a moment where that's a real problem this summer. It's it's impacting families and spouses who have to move and plan for the next moves. And then the colonels and people who want to move up uh, to become brigadier generals, they're looking ahead saying, hey, there's no movement here. I'm Maybe we'll get out. And it really uh, mm. potentially could hollow out the military. The armies already have a very having a very hard time recruiting. And this certainly doesn't help right now. What's Senator, Senator Tuberville's end goal? Is that to have a, a complete reversal of this Pentagon policy in order to move these nominations through? I mean, you said it yourself, over 250, what is it, um, uh, more top brass positions are, are just simply, we don't have people in those positions right now. So what, what would it have to take to sort of move this along, get these people in those positions? Well, I think Senator Tuberville has sent a lot of mixed messages. He basically would like a call from the White House or from Defense Secretary Austin to discuss. He feels that uh, the Pentagon has overstepped by um, not keeping the spirit. He's accusing the Pentagon of being in violation of the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment, of course, back in the uh, 80s was passed to prevent any government money being used to fund abortions. Um, And that has been agreed to by by not only the Pentagon, but but uh, all government agencies since the mid 80s. And um, the Pentagon says they're not paying for abortions. They're not even encouraging people to have abortions. They'd much rather people not need an abortion. But in the event that you, against your will, are assigned to a base in a state that has now outlawed that procedure, if your doctor deems that you need that procedure, uh, mm-hmm. they are going to allow you time off and paid travel to go to uh, see a doctor to in order to have a safe abortion. And uh, that is a discussion that the it's really a standoff between Senator Tuberville and the Pentagon. The Pentagon says they're not in violation of the Hyde Amendment, and so t- Senator Tuberville is wrong. And um, it's really not clear uh, whether or when uh, Senator Tuberville will back down and if a call from the White House would be enough. Is it a discussion that he wants or does he want a full reversal of the policy? Um, It's really not clear, but pressure is certainly building and the the damage being done to the readiness, the fact that there are going to be open positions, there will, you know, that we had an, uh, the confirmation hearing for the next army chief today, that army chief won't be able to be confirmed. And so you'll be without an army chief uh, next week because uh, by law, there are retirement deadlines for these four-star generals. Uh, this is not the time to be presenting this kind of weakness and, uh, and you know, having empty uh, spots at the head of your military uh, when you have Russia and China watching, you have a war in Ukraine, you've got, you know, this is happening on, while the president is meeting with NATO to discuss the war in Ukraine and how to present a united front to Russia. And it, it's quite embarrassing to see these, uh, this, this sort of game of this showdown and, and, and sort of brinksmanship that Senator Tuberville is able to hold up, you know, 250 people's lives, the families of these military people. It's hurting the, the military. The military uh, officers are not making this policy. This is a policy decision by the Biden administration, and they are basically being held hostage in this process. And it's not the first time it's happened. It happened. Uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth did the same in uh, in two, uh, 2020. She was uh, trying to get uh, assurances from the then Defense Secretary Mark Esper that Alexander Venman, who was testifying um, in an impe- oh, yeah. impeachment trial against President Trump, that he would not be punished. 
finished, she held up about a thousand nominations for a month. So really, most people are saying, and certainly the Pentagon is saying, is keep politics out of this process. Let's not break the military while you're having these political squabbles. Mm. And it's probably not ideal for logistics and planning as well. On the opposite end of the top military brass, you've got recruiting generally, right? Like all branches are struggling, but mostly the army. And I was reading that the Pentagon said, I think it was last fall, that 77% of younger Americans would not qualify for military service without a waiver because they're overweight, use drugs, or have mental or physical health problems. I'm not sure that's the military's responsibility to fix. It sounds like a a broader societal issue we have here. It's a huge problem, and it's not just that they're overweight and and aren't fit to serve because of past drug use or mental health issues. It's also that they can't pass the exam, so they're not prepared to take the Mm. quantitative reasoning tests, uh, the reading tests, um, and and so the Army has actually had to set up a sort of bridging program, a, a training program, to train the recruits before they can even go through basic training, and they're finding that's helping. It's almost like summer school, but but they're they're uh, putting, you know, unfit, if you're physically unfit, you can go through a summer of training, but also they're giving them some basic educational um, uh, foundations. That really is uh, is a, uh, this, this should be a concern for the entire nation if our education system is not preparing young people to be able to go in uh, to basic training in the military. There's something wrong with that education yeah. system. Oh, gosh. Um, Jen, a couple more um, aspects or different things that popped up during uh, Tuesday's hearing. You know, a lot of Republicans, and we've seen this in in many military hearings, they expressed concern about a host of cultural issues, diversity, transgender-related issues in the military. Um, General Brown said he signed a a memo a few years back that did mention an effort at more diversity, but said he wouldn't have signed it if the military's merit-based system had not been in place. And he also said at this hearing, that he himself never wanted to be known as the best African-American F-16 pilot, just the best F-16 pilot. Do you think those kinds of, of words, that narrative from him, will be good enough on this issue for Republicans to get through this confirmation process? You know, I listened to the whole hearing yesterday, and most of the Republicans uh, in the Senate hearing were very supportive of General Brown. They know General Brown. They've dealt with him over the years. They've known him as the head of the Air Force. This is not somebody who's unknown to them. And I think to hear his words yesterday, and it would be nice if we could play his actual statement uh, of exactly how he feels as, yes, he was the first African-American to head the U.S. Air Force and he would be the second black chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But honestly, uh, to hear him speak of how he all along had expected to be judged not by the color of his skin, but by uh, his achievements and how he was judged by his achievements, it was very powerful. And I think he's going to be a very powerful voice for not only how important it is to have a diverse army that reflects America, but also how how army, air force, military that reflects America, but also how, um, how, you know, 
these accusations, which frankly have gotten to be a bit of a drumbeat, amplified by the media, um, pushed, frankly, by the Republican side that this is a woke military. There's a lot, a lot of bristling at that within the military and at the higher ranks saying, hey, we don't have any different sort of diversity uh, efforts than your average corporation. Fox News has the same kind of DEI uh, training and, and efforts at recruitment that the military has. So, so some of this is getting a bit exaggerated in um, in re- repetition by, of a narrative that the military is woke, and it's having a self-fulfilling prophecy now. So that now recruits are saying, "I don't want to join the military because it's so mm. woke." Well, what does that mean exactly? Um, and I think General Brown was very uh, very profound yesterday when he talked about uh, what his experience was in terms of rising through the ranks. Through, merit, through his own merits. And yes, he's the first African-American and he'd like more outreach to the African-American community, but he is not, uh, he, he does not believe in elevating one group or race uh, above another. Uh, it, it all still must be based on merit. And Jen, um, just a couple more for you. There was, of course, discussion about the threats we're facing, and General Brown is obviously keenly aware of them, um, and he referenced some of those um, things as he was questioned about what he understands to be going on, right, with NATO, with Russia, with Ukraine, and the uh, Indo-Pacific. And I, I, I found it interesting when he said that he's learned, he's learned a thing or two, you know, about watching from his position within the military, the importance of information sharing, relationship forming, um, and fortified early on with our allies, the importance of logistics as he watched specifically how Russia has managed the, the war in Ukraine, the, the, the importance of having logistics you know, up and running. And I found it really interesting uh, to listen to him, especially as, uh, you know, as he, you know, he's not there yet but how, how he might step into that role and, and manage things um, as we keep sending Ukraine you know, aid and assistance and, and how, I guess, what his take on things is. It doesn't seem necessarily so uh, far off from General Milley, but, but I guess it would remain to be seen, yes? Well, no, I think that uh, I don't think you'll see a, a dramatic break from the leadership of General Milley to General C.Q. Brown. General Brown has been a, on a member of the Joint Chiefs and so has worked closely with General Milley uh, for years, frankly. Um, he's Air Force, General Milley's Army. The chairman uh, rotates between the services, so it's sort of Air Force's turn, if you will. And mm. and I think General Brown is perf- has been very intimately involved, not not only with uh, the Air Force component that that had to evacuate Afghanistan and had to airlift more than 100,000 people out of Afghanistan. That was a logistical um, nightmare, mm-hmm. frankly, that the Air Force took the lead on and um, and helped with that airlift. He knows what the Air, the Air Force has been relied upon to get the weapons to Ukraine quickly. They've uh, delivered them to Europe and to Poland. And that is, you know, logistics is not always the sexiest part of the military when you join the military, but it is the backbone of the military. Yeah. And when it works well, uh, that's when, uh, that is when uh, militaries win wars. You see what, it, what happens when logistics 
don't work. And that's what's happening in Ukraine right now with the Russian military. They don't have strong logistics. They don't have good supply lines. They're easily cut off. And that has been a strength of the Ukrainian military. They've been able to cut off the Russian supply lines. So logistics is very important, isn't it? It may not be as exciting as, you know, being a special operator going through um, Navy SEAL training and, and jumping <laughs> out of airplanes, but but it's, it's what really uh, wins wars. Okay, last thing for you. Is this 2024 military budget with its increases, specifically this $9 billion for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, on its way to approval? I mean, we've heard some concerns from Republicans over fewer ships in the Navy and what exactly does modernization look like? Can we walk and chew gum at the same time? But it does sound like hearing after hearing that, that focuses on the military budget that it looks like it will be approved. Well, I think you're going to have a lot of uh, fights in in, okay. in the process. This NDAA always it's always yeah. a a food fight. Um, I think it's very important right now. The problem with the Pentagon budget is it always sounds enormous, and it is enormous right. compared to the rest of the uh, in the size of the government. But if you look at it as a percentage of GDP and what the U.S. is spending and able uh, to do with that budget, and what the military is asked to do, the military is being asked to determine are two great powers, China and Russia. This is a generational uh, period of conflict where, or potential conflict, that they're trying to deter wars with two great powers. And that take that costs a lot of money, particularly when you're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about logistics, the logistics of moving uh, of moving equipment and having a forward presence in, in the Asia Pacific, which is so far away, so large, and vast amounts of ocean space, uh, that costs money. And, and this budget, while $9 billion sounds like a lot of money to you and me, it's not that much when you are talking about moving an aircraft carrier or adding an aircraft carrier to deter China from invading Taiwan. Fox News Chief National Security Correspondent Jen Griffin, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jessica. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Congress is back in session with a number of key hearings looking at alleged bias in the FBI and a major golf merger and a conversation with New Hampshire Secretary of State David Scanlon on the Democratic National Committee's new calendar, making their primary second in line after South Carolina. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.